0: Well, greetings everyone again. Uh, good to be back with you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. That's where we are in our study of John. We find ourselves exactly where we are today, Palm Sunday. You may not have realized, yes, it's Palm Sunday. All the days are running together. The weeks are now running together, but it's the week before Easter, it's Palm Sunday. I don't know about you, but the denomination I was raised in, when we came into church on Palm Sunday, we got this long piece of palm. And it was kind of cool because it was one of those weeks where you actually receive something going in the church. And we would make little figurines out of it during the service. And, you know, later you would put it on your rearview mirror or your bicycle if you were young. You thought it was like a magic good luck charm from God. And we probably didn't know the significance. I'm sure they read the story of Palm Sunday that we're going to read today. But it didn't mean anything back then, at least to me. When I came a believer in Jesus Christ, Palm Sunday has profound significance. And I think you're going to enjoy the study today. And it is eye opening on so many levels. So this is John's account, all four gospel writers give us the triumphal entry. This is John's account. It's John chapter 12. Remember in verse one, John tells us this is six days before the Passover. That's critical and there was a feast in Bethany. We talked about how God had given Jesus this lavish final dinner at the home of Simon the leper. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was there, many of Jesus' friends his disciples. Now, it says the next day, the day after this feast, this is verse 12, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, and went down to meet him and they cried out they began either singing or saying psalm 118 this messianic psalm hosanna blessed is the one who comes in the name of the lord and here's the king phrase the king of israel jesus when he had found a young donkey sat on it as it is written fear not daughter of zion behold your king is coming lowly and sitting on a donkey's colt his disciples did not understand these things at first but when jesus was glorified then they remembered these things were written about him and that he had done these things he was fulfilling the old testament prophecies therefore the people who were with him when he called lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness for this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done these things. The Pharisees therefore said to themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has now gone after him. We call this Palm Sunday because of the palms they laid down. We also call it the triumphal entry. Here's why. It wasn't really a triumph. It wasn't really an entry. Uh, think about the text that we just read. A triumph was a Roman... Parade like a ticker tape parade through New York City, when a conquering general would come back from defeating a standing army or sacking a city. He would come in on a white stallion, the armies would be behind him, the people would be cheering, and he was lauded as their general or their great king. Jesus here is presented to Israel as its king, but notice his humility, notice his weakness. In Jesus' entire ministry, He would heal someone of blindness. Uh, He would heal someone of leprosy. What was the one thing he always told them? See that you tell no one. You ever think that was strange? Like somebody who's blind from birth can now see, and they're not going to tell anyone? Of course, they all told. They all told the things Jesus had done. And I'm sure when he fed 5,000 or turned the water into wine, those stories went throughout all the region. The Bible says his fame began to grow. But Jesus would never receive that fame. He would feed 5,000 people and retreat to the other side in a boat. This is the one day where they said, This is our king, and Jesus received their adulation. The question is why. It's a very important question. We're going to look at it on two levels. The first reason is what I shared two weeks ago, that God was in control of everything that's going on. John's going to write in the next 10 chapters about Jesus last week on earth, the week of the Passover. Why is that significant? Because John wants us to give us every detail so that we know that this is fulfillment of something that happened way back in Exodus chapter 12. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was one of the few people, the forerunner, who knew exactly why Jesus had come. Jesus had come as the Lamb of God for Israel and the world. He had come to die. He was pointing us way back to Exodus chapter 12. Remember the first Passover where God's about to bring his people out of bondage, out of the world? Think of that figure. There's the Exodus physically out of Egypt into the promised land. And how does God do it? Well, way back in Exodus chapter 12, most of you know the story, but I wanna read it for you. Moses instructs the people, and this is worth going back to read on your own. This month, the month of Nisan, Passover month, shall be the beginning of your months for you and Israel. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbors next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So we've gone from a lamb to the lamb. And if the household is too small, let him and his neighbors next to his house take it according to the members of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. So we have a lamb, the lamb. Then your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month then the whole assembly of the congregation of israel all the homes shall kill it at twilight so notice we go from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb to a singular lamb that will be killed this was set up by god and celebrated for many years many years after the deliverance of israel they would celebrate the Passover looking back to all that God had done. This was their physical deliverance. But the physical deliverance was pointing to a spiritual deliverance that one day would come when the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would step on the head of the serpent and purchase our redemption. And John is bringing all of that back to us. This Passover week, he is presenting it to us, first of all, on Palm Sunday, the spotless lamb chosen by God for the deliverance of all people. And we're gonna see this all the way through John. We're gonna see the centurion say, this man has done nothing wrong. We're gonna see Pilate wash his hands, say, I have nothing to do with this. Even Judas who betrays him will say, I betrayed innocent blood. This was God's spotless lamb. And John is going detail by detail to show us that God was in control. Now, man would be held responsible, we know that. The leaders are responsible, both Roman and Jewish. Peter, who would deny him, and Judas, who would betray him, were all responsible. But the book of Acts says that this was not only man's responsibility, but was the full counsel and determinate purpose of God, that Jesus would go to the cross and die for you and me. God was in control, why is that important? Because in times like we're living in now and in times like this, it looks like God's not in control. Why? Because bad things happen. And so I'm sure in this day, they're looking at the events that are happening in Passover week and it looks like Rome's going to win. The people are going to shout crucify him and they're going to nail him to a cross. And for all those who followed Jesus and thought this was their deliverance and this was their hope, it looked like heaven had lost and Rome had won. Looks a lot like that in the pandemic we're living in and what people have lived through through the centuries. It looks like God's not in control and things are running wild, but what we need to remember is God is very much in control. This past week, I was on a Zoom call with Dr. Henry Cloud. He's one of my favorite authors. had a chance to go to Ecuador with him last August with 18 other pastors. So we were on a Zoom call and Henry's kind of walking us through some of the emotional things that people are dealing with so we can minister to our congregations and Henry is um, he's, a, he's a rare man I you know a lot of ministry leaders are trying to be an experts and everything of a pandemic uh, but Henry really has lived this out he's walked investment bankers through the 2008 financial crisis and he's walked people through some very high difficult challenges uh, he's got a PhD has his own hospital for mental illness in Los Angeles. He's written so many books and is also a biblical scholar. He's one of the few people who could tell you how your brain works and then give you the scripture to back it up or the other way around. And Henry was sharing what basically I'm finding here in this text is that human beings so want to be in control that you might feel that way. You might feel like you're melting down at home right now, creating new schedules, trying to, do things in a different way, which is so very important. But after a while, when, when things are taken away from us, we can't even go to parks or recreation areas. When you start to lose control, you move into like kind of a learned helplessness. And the illusion is that we had con- ever really had control. Henry shared that the only control God ever really has given us is self-control. It's very important and very smart idea. You see, most people think that freedom is, put off the restraints, let me go do whatever I want. And that's not true. God, in his loving plan, gave Adam and Eve borders and boundaries within the beauty of a wonderful garden. And uh, we all need those things. We all need structure. You know, God gave us times and seasons. Very important. And so he gave us this little bit of control called self-control, where I don't indulge, right, if I like ice cream, I don't eat ice cream until it's coming out my ears but I use self-control God gave me and then I can enjoy those things that He's freely given so in the times where it looks like God's absent He's not He's thoroughly in control He's in control of this pandemic and He'll see us through and His purposes will be established He was in control of the events that were going on this Passover week and so much was being fulfilled. This triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was to show that he was the rightful king, that he was the lamb. Now, can I introduce you to a prophecy where the first time I found it, it was one of the most spectacular things in the Bible? I've been a lover of prophecy my whole Christian experience. There's hundreds of prophecies of a Messiah who would come and die for Israel, and then one who would come again. We'll talk about that in a minute. The virgin birth. Uh, We just read about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, sold for 30 pieces of silver. None of his bones would be broken. I mean, there's prophecy after prophecy that men like Isaiah and Zechariah and Zephaniah wrote hundreds and hundreds of years. But I want to give you a prophecy of Daniel that is germane to Palm Sunday Many of you may know this. If you don't, it is one of the most astounding in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, who is in Babylonian exile, has a series of dreams. And it's revealed to him in one of these revelations that 77s are determined for your people and your holy city. Daniel was told that there would be 77-year periods so we kind of keep time in decades right we talk about the 30s the 40s we look at centuries the jews looked at years in sevens why well because god told them to farm the land for six years the seventh land let it lie fallow seven of those periods would be 49 years and then they would have a year of jubilee so they kept time way different than we did so 77 year periods or 178,500 days would roll out for your people, that's Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem. Now, here's what those days would bring. It would make an end to the transgression, an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy this prophecy when the time clock would begin would bring israel's deliver the king what we're studying on palm sunday now the question is when did it start well daniel says no therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, not the temple, until Messiah, the Prince, Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. After that, after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, ripped, uh, executed, we would say crucified, but not for himself and the people, the prince who was to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, etc. and so on. It's an incredible prophecy. Daniel said that there would be 69 seven-year periods that would usher in this Messiah, this prince, this king to Israel. So when did the decree begin? Well, that's easy. It was March 14th, 445 B.C. We know that because it was the first day of Nisan under the reign of Artaxerxes. This is in Nehemiah chapter two, one to six. Uh, This date again is March 14th, 445 B.C. Every scholar uh, believes that's true. Most of this work was done by Sir Robert Anderson at Scotland Yard, a great mathematician. If we take 69 times seven or 173,880 days, uh, the Prophetic years in Scripture are 360 days, but then we have to do the work of adding in leap years and filling in the calendar, which we know is 365 days. If you do all this work, you come out to April 6th, A.D. 32. Now, why is that important? Because that's the day we believe Jesus came in to Jerusalem. We think that's Palm Sunday. Uh, Luke, a wonderful historian, tells us that Jesus' ministry began in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, that's Luke 3, whose reign uh, began in about A.D. 14. So again, you do all that math, it brings us out to this day. The Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, confirms that the Sunday before Passover, remember this is a lunar feast, we know the month, that year was April 6th. 32 A.D. Now if you're saying, Pastor Bob, that seems like a stretch. Maybe it is. I think it is, and I think it's a fulfilled prophecy. But let's fill in the gaps with Dr. Luke. Luke says when Jesus came into the city and they laid the palm branches down, the religious leaders, the Pharisees said, stop your disciples from saying this. They knew it was a messianic psalm. They knew it spoke of the future king. You know what Jesus' answer was? If I make them stop, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because Jesus knew this was the day. Like the day he was to be born in Bethlehem, this is the day he would be presented as the rightful king, as the lamb, as the one who would pay for your sins and mine. The very stones would cry out. We don't even need Daniel's prophecy. The stones, Jesus said, would cry out. This was the day the Lord had made, and it was glad, and it was beautiful in his eyes. And Jesus, in all humility, rode in that day on a donkey. Let's talk about that. This is the king the world's always been longing for. A person of humility, a person of authenticity, someone meek and mild. We've been looking at that for leaders forever, but that's not all we want out of leaders. We want our leaders to be strong. We want them to cleanse the temple like Jesus did when it's necessary. We want to see what John sees in the book of Revelation when he looks around and he sees no one able to take the scroll, the title deed of the earth, and then he looks and he sees a lamb as though it were slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah the one worthy to take the seals and open them and let the judgment of God come out. You see, the beautiful thing about Palm Sunday is the rightful king had finally come to this world, one who was powerful and strong, the light of a tribe of Judah, but one who would get on a donkey and come in meek and mild and put the children on his lap. Strong, strong. And weak that's Jesus that's our king and he's the only king it's he's the king of kings it's the only one who's ever put all that together and then fulfilled his purpose you see each of the seven feast days of Israel Jesus fulfilled he became our Passover lamb he was the first fruits of those to rise from the dead and on the day of Pentecost the church began But that was his first coming. The thing I find most fascinating about Palm Sunday is that Jesus is coming again. The King's coming again. And he's not coming on a donkey this time. He's coming with the armies of heaven. And he's coming to Jerusalem, Zechariah tells us. It's a time when all Israel will be saved, Romans 9 to 11, where they will look and say, where did you get those wounds in your hand? He said, in the house of my friends. And on that day, there will be mourning and weeping when Israel this time doesn't reject her savior, but accepts her savior. This Palm Sunday, when Jesus came in to the city, Luke said he looked over it and he wept because he saw in 40 short years, less than 40 years, the Romans would build embankments around the city. They would starve the Jews out. Two million people would die. The temple would be destroyed and there would never be another sacrifice. And Israel will go out of the land and be a byword for the better part of 2,000 years. Jesus knew all that was ahead, and yet God was in control. Now, there's a fascinating ending in John to all this. And this is what I want to leave you for. This is the application. After Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it tells us in verse 20, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked Jesus, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Everybody wanted an appointment with Jesus. Think about it. And Philip came and told Andrew, and he in turn told Jesus. But Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain." He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves him, let him follow me, that where I am, there he may be. My servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Uh, Who are these Greeks? Well, they could have been Greek-speaking Jews who resided outside of Jerusalem and came for the feast or they could have been God-fearers. Gentiles who were tired of the Greco-Roman gods, who saw something in the God of Israel, the law, the, the sacrifices, and they had come to observe. And in my thinking, probably saw that Judaism was as empty as their religions. It had grown corrupt, but they were fascinated by this miracle worker, this teacher, Jesus. They were there probably on Palm Sunday. And they wanted an appointment with Jesus. And you know what Jesus' answer was? No. Jesus wouldn't meet with them. But he gives a very strange answer that he's about to be glorified. This grain of, you know, seed is going to go into the ground and live. And that, that we also should lose our lives. Why did Jesus say this? Here's the application, guys. Jesus said, these Greek people want to speak to me now. They can't, but there's coming a day where they will all speak to me. The entire Gentile world will hear from me, not because of a meeting, but because this seed will go into the ground and die and then produce the fruit it was meant to produce. What was always inside that seed will finally bear fruit. Of course, Jesus was speaking about his death, what he would accomplish, for not only Jews, but for all Gentiles, for all time, for you, for me. But he gives the application that we would lose our lives also. What does this mean? I want to use the illustration of the quarantine because it's so familiar to us now. This has nothing to do with the pandemic or coronavirus. Just has to do with the idea of quarantine. Can you imagine when Jesus rose from the dead And he told 120 people to meet in the upper room. Can you imagine if they stayed quarantined there? See, here's the metaphor. Satan's goal, his desire in all our lives is to keep us quarantined. Again, not the coronavirus. I'm just using the example. He would have so loved to keep the 120 in the upper room. They would have been safe. They couldn't have infected anyone. No one could kill them. There would be no martyrs. As long as they were quarantined, the 120 would be safe. But God didn't build them for safety. So the Holy Spirit, like dynamite, blew them out of that room. And 120 became 3,000 and 3,000 became 5,000. And a virus spread the Gospel. Into all the world. It was vomited into all the world as an unstoppable force. When the Word of God was taken out of people's hands, a man named Martin Luther came along who could have stayed silent, who I'm sure the devil wanted to quarantine, who could have played it safe, but instead he died to himself. That seed went in the ground, and the martyr seed went in the ground and there was an explosion of the Word of God and the Reformation took place. you guys see where I'm going? When Monica and I became young Christians in the early 80s, I'm sure the devil wanted to quarantine us. He knew we had a virus. He knew we were going to take the Gospel to our friends, our family, co-workers, youth groups. We were going to start a church. We were ready to infect the world with the Gospel. His greatest goal would have been to quarantine us. Be safe, make decisions based on money, save your life. See guys, that's the metaphor. Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He came to earth, took on a body, said in the garden of Gethsemane, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he purchased our freedom. The early church didn't play it safe. They died to themselves and they bore tremendous fruit. The question I have for you is when this pandemic's over and you've been safe, here's the question. What have you been safe for? Your safety, you're now safe, but what are you safe for? What part of you has to die? What part of you has to go into the ground that you can see the ultimate purpose for which you were born? That you can go out and infect a world only you can infect, reach people only you can reach. We're safe, guys. God's in control, but He wants to use us. In this final week of Jesus' life, our King, shows us the glory, and the example, and the one we truly follow. So look forward to next week, Easter, we'll be back at church. We're excited for what we're gonna teach. Guys, this is a crappy time, it really is. We're trying to figure out so many things. But read the scriptures, God's in control. And maybe this downtime, instead of fretting or watching news, he's revitalizing all of us. So when we get to back, we get on a stronger mission than we've we've ever had. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us strong. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the power through video, through live stream, through all these methods that we're using. God, would you touch those who are afflicted? God, would you send your healing to churches in Kenya and Partners we have in Guatemala who are suffering right now don't have our prosperity. God, would you just have your way through the power of the Holy Spirit through this pandemic. Comfort your people, God. Thank you that you made us a church. In Jesus' name, amen.